Welcome to Heartland for Children's Let's Talk About It podcast, where we provide education and resources for family matters in Polk, Highlands, and Hardy counties. We're so glad that you've joined us. So now, let's talk about it. (laughs) Welcome to this episode of Let's Talk About It. My name is Katie and Parchment. I'm with Heartland for Children. We are so excited to be filming today and have a special guest with us. Um, Our education specialist, Cherie Perrin, is also with Heartland for Children, and we had an opportunity to speak to her today and find out a little bit more about her role and what um, she plays in our system of care. So allow me to introduce Cherie and welcome her to our podcast. Welcome, Cherie. Thank you for having me, Katie. You're welcome. So Cherie, I have the privilege of working with you pretty often, but I would love for you to kind of tell a little bit about who you are, your position, how long you've been in your position. So um, like you said, my name is Cherie. I've been with Heartland for Children for almost a year. I began right at the um, end of September, early October. Um, and so we're coming up on that year mark. Okay. Um, before I was with the Polk County School Board for about 12 years, I was a teacher, elementary, middle, and high. Uh, most recently, I did behavior intervention at an elementary school that had about 1,000 children. Um, I also previously was a foster parent, um, and I'm currently a level one um, non-relative caregiver to a one-year-old almost. Um, and then um, I also was a gal volunteer in my in my history. Awesome. So speaking of history, tell us a little bit about your background, your educational background. I heard you teach or was in a school system for 12 years. Yes. So I went to Polk State and then Florida Southern for my bachelor's in elementary education. And then I completed my master's um, in curriculum and instruction. Okay. So you are from Polk County. Yes. Born and raised, schooled here. So you are really ingrained in this community, which is wonderful. I went to Eagle Lake Elementary, Westwood Middle, and Lake Region High School. Okay. So you really know the Polk County school system real well. In your position now, have you had an opportunity to learn a little bit about Highlands and Hardy County? Yes, I have. I just actually was in Highlands this week, spending some time down there training our school liaisons. Um, I've been to Hardy County many times. They're both great communities. Wonderful. So you've been with Heartland for about a year and prior to that with the school system. What made you switch from education to child welfare? Well, I had kind of always, I dipped my toe in, like I had been a foster parent and then a guardian ad litem volunteer. So I'd kind of seen both sides. And then also as a teacher, I'd just seen the great need for um, positive um, adults in the child welfare um, profession. Um, So I had kind of always kind of been teetering and I was um, took in a brand new baby. He was only two days old when he came home from the hospital to me as a non-relative placement. Um, and I was up in the middle of the night, as you are, with an infant. And I was scrolling through Facebook, and there was this education specialist position with Heartland. And I thought, that is for me. I read the job description. I applied right there in that moment. And um, I was just very blessed to get the position and start with Heartland. Well, we're blessed to have her, because she's done an awesome job so far. So in your position, you applied, you had your interview, you got hired. Tell us a little bit about what your role is. So here at Heartland, my primary role is to facilitate the ESSA staffings, and ESSA stands for Every Student Succeeds Act, um, and so that we hold those staffings anytime a child's school placement is being discussed, whether or not we're gonna change it or not. And we also hold those staffings within the Senate Bill 80 um, MDT staffing. So if their physical placement changes from one placement to another, we hold an SS staffing at the same time to determine whether or not their school placement will need to change because of that move. 
So just for those of you who don't understand the terminology, when you say staffing, you're referring to like a meeting? Yes, it is a meeting. And when I came over from the school board, I was still calling them meetings. And so I had to change that vocabulary within myself as well. But it is a meeting. Okay. So you hold ESSA staffings. You're a part of the MDT, oh. Senate Bill staff, um, staffings as well. What other things do you do as the education specialist? So, um, like I said, this week I went and trained the school liaisons. So I work as um, the collaborative partner between the school system and the child welfare system for children in Circuit 10. Um, I also do educational advocacy for any children that are maybe having some issues at school behaviorally or academically, um, or just maybe just need some extra love and maybe just need to be labeled as, you know, handle with care. So being able to um, work with schools closely, I have a lot of friends in the school system, so being able to reach out to my friends and say, hey, you have so-and-so at your school who's in our system of care, and you know, they need these extra supports. How can I help you help that child? Awesome. We love that there's somebody on board who is really advocating for the educational needs of our students. Yes. So as a part of your role, that ESSA staffing, walk us through who's invited, why is that even important, what does that mean to the child? So um, the child welfare team is the, the ones that normally request the staffing, and that includes the child's case manager, the case manager supervisor, anybody from the case management organization that plays a role in that child, they would come to the staffing. Um, you also have the guardian ad litem's office, and that can be the CAM, child advocate manager, and the volunteer, or both, or one or the other. Um, you also have the placement, um, so where that child is currently placed, um, biological parents play a, uh, play a huge role. We definitely want their input. We want them involved. Um, you know, they know their child the best. Um, anybody else who has any sort of role in that child's life, if they have a therapist or a mentor um, that they see regularly that knows them and knows what's good for them and what, and what might not be. Um, Wow. There's there's somebody else, I'm sure. Well, I think the one person who you didn't mention was the child. Yes, the child we, do, we do invite the children, um, and their input is so valuable. We definitely want to hear what they have to say. And, um, you know, because they may say, I want to change schools, or they may say, I don't want to change schools. I'm playing football, and I've worked really hard, and that's my primary reason for wanting to stay. And if they're not there and we don't know that, then we can't make a valid decision. Okay. So during that discussion, you kind of look at the pros and the cons of the child change in schools. How often does this take place? So anytime a child's school change is kind of up in question, then we're holding an ESSA staffing. Um, and we have a school stability checklist that we go through, that I go through as the facilitator of the staffing, um, that asks questions like, you know, how are they doing in school academically? Have they had any behavioral challenges? Um, do they have a trauma response plan in place? If not, do we need to develop a trauma response plan? Um, what do they like? What do they like about school? And you know, for some kids, they say they love to read, they love to do math, they love to do science, but some kids, they like to go to lunch, and that's okay. So for me, I will say things like they're social. Uh, they enjoy the social aspect of school, and that can, you know, that holds weight if we're talking about moving a child's school, if they enjoy the social aspect, because all of their friends are there. So does this happen when a kid is leaving from like elementary to middle school? Do you still have to have one of those staffings? No, those are considered natural changes. So if a child's going from like pre-K to kindergarten, fifth to sixth, which is elementary to middle, or eighth to ninth, um, those are considered natural changes and we don't hold staffings for those situations. Okay, 
So it's just really if they happen to change placements in the middle of the school year, mm -hmm. and you have to consider a change in school. Yes, and we've even had some staffings this summer for kids that have moved placements over the summer. So even though it's the summer, that's not a natural change unless it's a natural change. So mm -hmm. if they're going from second to third, but their placement changed, that's not natural. So we're holding an S of staffing. To just make sure they're equipped and ready for school yes, to start. Yes, they have everything they need. That's another question I ask is if they need any school supplies or anything else. And why is this important again? There's so many reasons. Um, you know, there's so much data about how a child has such learning loss every time you change their school. So we want to try to keep their school as consistent as possible for that, that reason. If a child is changing schools and one school's here and another school's here, they'll have learning loss. Um, and that can lead to lower test scores. That can lead to a child becoming withdrawn because they feel like they're behind. Um, and if they've experienced trauma, they may not be one to speak up and say, hey, I don't understand this, or I didn't learn this at my old school. Um, another, another leg to that is the social aspect, like I said. If, they're developed, if they've developed relationships with other students or adults at that school, and maybe that's the most stable relationship they have, and we're taking them out of that environment, you know, that can lead to further trauma. Absolutely. So it sounds like keeping the kids stable in the school really helps with reducing trauma and just keep, keep, keeping them with a sense of normalcy, which is super important. When we say that we're working in the best interest of a child, what does that mean for you? We are always working to ensure that a child's needs are being met, and that is educational as much as it is emotional, as physical. Um, we wanna make sure that they feel um, listened to and valued. So if they, like I said, like that one we had recently that just didn't want to change schools because he had worked so hard to make the football team, hearing him and saying, I hear you, and so we're going to work to keep you at that school, and we did. Wow. So it's things like that. We want to make sure that not only that they feel heard, but that if they can't participate in the meeting, that their needs are still met, all of their needs. That's wonderful. So what are some things, because if his school, for instance, that example you gave, if his old school is on the north side of town and his new placement is in a different city within the same county, then what does that look like when it comes to transportation and making sure that child could get there? So that is what the perp one of the main purposes of the ESSA Act is. So like I said, ESSA stands for Every Student Succeeds Act. So the purpose of the ESSA Act is to ensure that children have school stability. And so part of that is um, allowing the school boards to come up with bus routes for children that are maybe not at a school that is their zone school, but is their school of origin, which is in that case where that child was already attending. Um, so our Polk County School Board, Highlands and Hardy, the um, area managers work very hard to find those bus routes and um, help transport those kids. And are those things uh, um, something you also take into consideration? The length of time the child may be on the bus, the, the time that they would, might need to wake up when you're making a decision about that stability? Yes, absolutely. Part of that school stability checklist um, asks about mileage. So, you know, but when we're talking about mileage too, we have to consider Polk County. Um, and, you know, so we had a kid that was in North Lakeland and was moving over to the Poinciana area and they were in kindergarten. So in that case, it's really not in that child's best interest to spend three hours a day on a bus. And that's a, that's a generous estimate. Um, so, you know, we kind of had to weigh that in when we talked about that school change. So it sounds like there's a lot of important things that are just really taken into consideration. Yeah, this child might love this school, but is it in his best interest to stay there? Absolutely. Sounds good. All right, so um, school stability, we know we heard a kindergartner, we know we heard about the football player, but 
why is this important when we have kids who are in the child welfare system? If they're moving to a different home, that might be better for them. Why is it important for them to stay in their original school? So kind of like what I said, you know, children develop relationships in those schools um, and also learning loss. We want to protect against learning loss as much as possible. We don't want a child at 12 schools in eight months. Um, we want to make sure, and that's kind of another reason that the ESSA Act was created, was to ensure that children were not jumping schools so frequently to the point where they lost a whole school year because they moved four times in that same year. Um, school years are short. I know it doesn't feel like it as an educator, but those 180 days go fast. And so if you're moving a kid every 90, you're definitely affecting their educational outcomes. And as I know school transportation with the school bus is something that area managers work with um, to try and make sure they get a route. But if they can't develop a route for that child, then what other options? Is there anybody who works as a team to try to make sure that kid gets to and from school? Absolutely. So the child welfare team, which includes the case manager, um, organization, the guardian ad litem organization, and the placement of the child um, working together. We had a situation where a child was going to a school and being on the bus was dysregulating to that child. And so case management and the placement worked together where case management was taking him Monday, Wednesday, Friday and picking him up and the placement was doing Tuesday and Thursday. So kind of divvying that up so that everybody is playing a role in that. Um, and then we have a great guardian ad litem program here in Circuit 10 and they also will help as needed. Well, it sounds like stability and collaboration is really important when it comes to the schooling aspect. Absolutely. Um, another thing that you do in your role is you said that you advocate. So when you meet advocate, what are some things that you do? So um, a lot of times I will go to schools to hold meetings with the um, school leadership team. Um, and that can include the administration all the way down to the teacher themselves. Um, and so working with the school maybe to develop a trauma response plan. Or if we have a child who um, their um, coping mechanism is escape, so they will elope, they'll leave the classroom. So developing a safety plan so that when they do run out of the classroom, we have a safety plan in place. Like where is, who's the adult that child's likely gonna go to? Um, who's gonna track that kid down so we know where they are? Um, we had a child recently who was, was physically assaulting other children and struggling to really just keep their hands to themselves. Um, and they would just get very dysregulated to the point where they just couldn't control their emotions. Um, and so working with the school to create um, a PBIP or a positive behavior intervention plan, um, and then eventually an IEP for that child. Um, so, and that, the guardian ad litem was um, a huge part of that as well, um, and the case manager. And we sat down at a table literally every two weeks we met about that child um, for probably 10 times, um, and we just, we just made it work. We worked out. We worked out what's in the best interest of the child. Nice. So what is a trauma response plan? So a trauma response plan is a plan that schools um, have in place for children that may have experienced trauma in the past that may be triggered by certain things. So um, knowing those tri triggers and using trauma-informed care to address those behaviors so that they're not... Um, further triggered or for, further traumatized. Um, when a child is escalated, we wanna not meet them at that point, but bring them down to a de-escalated or regulated state. And that can involve um, going and speaking to an adult on campus that they trust. Maybe the adult that they're with right now is not one that they trust or know, and having that relationship. It can be as simple though as offering a snack or a bottle of water. Um, TBRI is something that we're doing, um, and we're training more and more people in TBRI and that's trust-based relationships. 
relational intervention. Relational intervention. So that's trust-based relational intervention. Um, and just making sure that children's needs are met. You know, we talk about Maslow and the hierarchy, right? You can't meet those big, those um, feeling that feeling needs until you've met those basic needs. So if the child needs a bottle of water or they need to take a break every 45 minutes, having that written down so that um, the, the whole school knows, the whole school staff, because especially like our high school kids see so many adults. Um, and so just having a plan in place to kind of prevent escalations to the point where we're having to involve law enforcement or do discipline action. That's really, really important because we know our kids experience trauma, they're in our system of care. So having those preventative measures in place so that we are proactive instead of reactive really helps to, with stability and reducing um, additional trauma. So that's awesome. Um, I know an initiative that um, some of the school districts are doing is training their staff in youth mental health first aid. So also going in and helping staff use those resources and those um, techniques to help our kids as well. Yeah, which is another great tool to have in the toolbox, uh, just to how to help, help a kid get regulated until professional help could be reached. Mm -hmm. Is there anything else you do in your role that kind of stands out to you? Um, I don't think so. I've, I think we covered it all. Um, definitely um, participating in the Senate Bill 80s. We talked a little bit about that. Um, the Senate Bill 80 team here is wonderful, and I work very closely with them to ensure that children's educational and placement needs are being met um, and that those two things are going hand in hand. So when we have a child who's in our system of care who's worked really hard throughout the school year, um, is there any recognition for that child or anything that you do to kind of just make sure you're on top of what going on academically? Yes. Yeah, so this year we um, did a, we did like a drive-by celebration for our graduating seniors and it wasn't just high school seniors, it was anybody who was completing a program. So we had several children that had worked very hard to obtain a GED um, or finish a technical program and that's just as crucial. So we went to their houses or their school, we went to one school with balloons and a treat and um, took pictures and just congratulated them and made sure that they felt like we appreciated all the hard work that they had put in because that's a that's a huge journey to get to the end of. Wow. Um, and then also we had children who had uh, maintained straight A's or A's and B's or um, you know whatever the case may be. We sent home certificates for those children and mailed them right to their placements um, so that they could be celebrated within their placement as well. And what was the reaction to the kids when you did the drive-by? Were they happy? Absolutely. They were very excited to see us. I think that it you know definitely lifted spirits. Um, there was one family that they had the child come out in their cap and gown. Um, and so she was just so proud of herself as she should have been. I um, mean, we were so proud of her. So just, it felt good. It was, it was so much fun for me too. It was so much fun for her. She loved seeing us and it was so much, it was so exciting for us as well because it definitely uplifts us as well. Um, you know, we work so hard and we want to make sure these kids are successful. So it's nice to see that and, and to celebrate it. Yeah. So throughout the year, how do you keep up with grades and academic uh, behaviors and stuff like that? So we use a system called Mindshare that shares data. Um, anytime a child misses three consecutive days, I get an email um, because when I was a classroom teacher, I used that as a tool to reach out to caregivers and say like, hey, what's going on with so-and-so? Is there anything that you need? Um, and providing those sort of supports. Um, I also get an email anytime a child has a formal discipline action. So if there's a suspension, ISS or OSS, so in school or out of school. Um, and that kind of gives me like a red flag system in my head. If I'm seeing the same kid over and over again, 
then I will reach out to the case management team and see like, you know, what's going on. Why is this child getting written up so frequently? And then also to the school, what supports do you need to help this child be successful? And like I talked about like trauma response plan or um, doing MTSS, helping the school with MTSS. Um, if the child has been diagnosed already um, and could possibly use a 504 because maybe they've already been diagnosed with ADHD, but because of their situation, the school doesn't know, providing that sort of knowledge. Yeah. Okay. Well, it sounds like that's a great tool to kind of keep you ahead of the game too and what's going on with that child so that you could do that early intervention when needed. Mm -hmm. Definitely. So talk to us a little bit about trauma and how that affects a child in school. So trauma is a fickle thing, right? Because it can affect a child in ways that we don't even know. Um, a child can be dysregulated um, and we, we know about fight or flight, right? So we know that when somebody is dysregulated, they're gonna, f they're gonna fight whatever it is or they're gonna flight, they're gonna leave the situation. But there's a third one and that's freeze. And so a lot of times children will freeze in place and it will be taken as defiance, but it's not. It's, it's, a, it's a, a, a symptom of their trauma. So they're frozen in place, they're not moving, they're ignoring a direct instruction, but it's not that they're giving that person a hard time, it's that they're having a hard time. And it may be that their nervous system has just completely shut down. And so, you know, if we escalate, continuously escalate to a child who has shut down that way, then we're just not doing anything to benefit that child. Um, and when a child is dysregulated, offering other options, like I said, if the child is dysregulated and you say something like, do you wanna go take a walk? Or would you like a bottle of water? Or when was the last time you ate? Do you want a snack? Just making sure that they feel like you're hearing them and that they, um, you see past the behavior because sometimes kids will misbehave um, because they think if they push you away far enough, then they won't have to deal with you. Yeah. Um, so definitely showing love to kids and showing them that you do care. Um, and remember that they're gonna show you that they need love and not the best ways always. So I know schools look through an educational lens. Do they ever have an opportunity to learn about um, child abuse or the trauma triggers that you were talking about um, and see things through a child welfare lens? Absolutely, so schools are, school staff are trained each year in um, child abuse prevention and reporting. Um, and we just did that down in Highlands, like we were talking about. Um, and then I trained the liaisons also and a little bit in the TBRI and trauma-informed care. And we talk about, we have those conversations. Um, and then I try to be as accessible to schools as possible. Um, I got to meet with the Polk County School Board school social workers during the last school year and they got to meet me, it was virtual, but they got to see my face and hear my name. And I knew a lot of them just from my um, career. Um, but giving them my phone number and my email address so if they had any questions they could reach out and um, if they ever need support then I'm always here to help. Okay. So another resource is a newsletter and um, whenever there is relevant information that schools need then I can send that out and share that with schools and that also has my contact information on it so if they have any questions they can reach out. And last school year I did send it at one point and um, a Kate, uh, social worker reached back out to me and said oh I didn't know who to reach out to I was still new in my role. And she's like, I didn't know who to reach out to and I have this kid I have all these questions about, can you help me? So just getting that awareness out so they, they know who I am. Wonderful. So you mentioned before school liaisons, who are they? So every school has a point of contact that Heartland uses um, as kind of like a bridge between the school itself and the child welfare side of things. 
Um, we don't want schools feeling like they're working in a silo, and we don't want case managers feeling like they're or guardian and items. We want everybody to be working collaboratively. So that point of contact is invited to those MDTs and SS staffings um, so that they can share their input, which is so valuable um, because they're, you know, the boots on the ground, right? It's normally the school counselor. Um, um, so they participate in those staffings. Anytime I have a question about a child, that's going to be my point of contact that I'm going to reach out to. Um, a lot of times we'll have kids that will move out of area and then back in area. And so I'll be trying to track down transcripts from lots of different places. And so the first contact is for me is that school liaison and saying, hey, you know, here's a court order. I need transcripts. And normally they're very quick to provide that information back to me. Awesome. So do you only work with our kids who are in the public school setting or do you ever have to interact with any kids who are in like a DJJ lockup setting or alternative school? Yeah. So any child who is in our system of care is known to the department. I work with them. So if they are dual, if they're DJJ and DCF, then I'm working with that child and that child's team to help support them. Okay. And what about kids who are like in daycare and pre-K? So only um, pre-K children if they have an IEP. So if they've gotten an IEP, they're, they're in what's considered ESE pre-K, then yes, I do work with those children. We do hold SS staffings for those children. But if, one, if a child's going from one daycare provider center to another center, then we don't hold an SS staffing for those children. Okay. And so it sounds like collaboration is super important. You have the school board working together, case management, guardian at litem, Heartland for Children. Can you think of a time where that collaboration was vital to the need, um, meeting the needs of a child? So an example of a time when we worked collaboratively between the school board and the child welfare team um, would be a child who had an um, IEP and was really struggling, just really struggling behaviorally, academically. Just um, his, he was just very much having a hard time, just to put it at basic. Um, and he would get dysregulated and throw things. Um, and so he did throw some, something um, at an adult and the school w wanted to expel him. And so having a manifestation hearing with the school um, because he had an IEP um, and we just kind of sat down as a team and worked together to come up with an alternative solution. I um, mean, that ended up being a specialized behavioral unit within the same Polk County School Board. So that child moved to that unit and was doing uh, much better there. Um, he was getting definitely what he needed um, because those, those units are um, designed for children who have a lot of severe behavioral issues. Um, and his behavioral issues were rooted in trauma. He mm -hmm. had experienced a lot of trauma. And so he would get, like I said, he would get dysregulated very easily. So working together as a team to kind of come up with a solution um, as a group so that the school didn't feel like they were just having to deal with this childhood that was just, in their opinion, out of control. Um, so just stepping in and saying, hey, there are resources to help. Which is really good because we don't want those kids being suspended over and over again. And yes. we want the school to feel like they're supported. Absolutely. As well as case manager and the placement, mm -hmm. the caregivers. Yes, definitely, definitely. So collaboration sounds like, again, a big factor. What happens in those situations where a parent may not be involved, where they're not available to help guide the educational needs of their child? So we have a couple situations where that does come up. Um, sometimes a parent's rights have been terminated or surrendered, and so they, they can't provide us with input because they don't have their rights intact anymore. Sometimes they are just unable to be found, you know, for whatever situation that they may be going through, we just cannot track them down. Um, sometimes the court system feels as though they're not the appropriate person to determine those sort of things. Um, and it may be like a limited cognitive ability. Um, it may just be because what they're going through, like right? 
So um, in that case, an educational surrogate is assigned. And so for those cases that um, under the IDEA Act, it protects children so that they, if they need to be evaluated for ESC services, then we're getting consent signed by the appropriate person. And in that case where a parent cannot sign or won't sign or is deemed not appropriate to sign, then an educational surrogate can be appointed by the court system or the Polk County or the school system. And who would fill that role? Is it the case manager? No, it is never the case manager. Um, oftentimes it is a guardian ad litem. Um, the guardian ad litems are great in that role as educational surrogates, they understand the system. Um, it can be another adult known to the child. So let's say grandma can't take the child in to live with her, but she's still very involved and she knows that child well and she knows what that child needs educationally. They can be appointed as the educational surrogate. It can also be a foster parent. So if the, the child has been um, in that placement for an extended period of time and that foster parent is advocating for those educational needs, which we have had happen, um, then the foster parent can also become appointed the educational surrogate. Very good. Sounds like there's a plan in place for every situation when Absolutely. it comes to education. Absolutely. Yes. So are there any tips or any things that you would like to leave anybody watching um, to just know about when it comes to ESSAs or your role or the importance of education? So I think the biggest thing is to ask questions. If you're unsure about something, ask questions. And if, and if it's related to education, that's my role here. So if you need help, um, reach out to me and I will do everything I can to help. Um, but ask questions to the school. What resources can you provide? Um, what interventions have been put in place already? Um, what things are working? What things aren't working? So just ask questions, and I, and I would say that to all parents. I think all parents need to be asking questions, and if you don't know what questions to ask, text me or email me or call me, and I, we will come up with a list together. Well, Cherie, I know working with you firsthand how excellent you've been in this position. Thank you. You have a heart for our kids and advocating for them and making sure that you're going above and beyond to make sure that they're seen, heard, and their needs are being met. So we are thankful and grateful to have you as our educational specialist at Heartland for Children and able to work in our system of care in Polk Highlands and Hardy counties. Thank you. You are a valued member of our team and really do a great job of advocating for our kids. So thank you, thank you for all that you do. Thank you. I love working for Heartland and I love my team. I just feel so I'm blessed to be part of such a hardworking team and I'm so grateful to be part of this group that works so hard for our children. All right. So thank you for joining us for this episode of Let's Talk About It. Um, hope to see you again. Bye. Thank you. Bye. Thank you for listening to Heartland for Children's Let's Talk About It podcast. There is a great need for foster families who are willing to open their hearts and homes to teens, sibling groups, and children with special needs. To learn more, check out the description for resources or visit heartlandforchildren.org.